Welcome to Shift with CJ. I'm your host CJ and together we will explore the areas of health, human performance, biohacking, psychology and much more that will inspire you to become the best version of yourself. More often than not, you've heard of various fitness influencers, dietitians and nutritionists talk about going low carb and eating decent amounts of protein. But I have hardly found a doctor that advocates for such areas of either going low carb or, you know, having higher protein, at least in the part of the world that I live in. Most doctors that I know believe that low carb diets can have a short term weight loss um, effect on the body, but they should be monitored and they shouldn't be long term because all that fat, especially in ketogenic diets, can raise chances of higher LDL, which is uh, low-density lipoprotein, or bad cholesterol, and contribute to cardiovascular diseases or even heart attacks in some ways. And having high amounts of protein can increase your chances of kidney failures and things like that. But to solve all the confusion, I have found a special person. My My guest on the show today is a doctor. He's a board certified family uh, medicine physician, and he practices and researches on the topics of health and exercise for total body optimization. He also has, has a book, writes articles. Dr. Ted Nyman, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Nice to meet you. Pleasure to meet you as well. So, Ted, everyone has a story behind why they started and how they started. And all people who do great work out there have such stories. What's yours? How did you start exploring health and wellness? Did it start from medical school or after that? Well, <clears throat> I w- so I was actually raised a uh, Seventh-day Adventist, which is this weird religion that is highly uh, plant-based, basically mm-hmm. vegetarian. And uh, they have a very strong health message and diet is this really big deal. Um, so I kind of came from this like diet is important background, but I never felt particularly healthy on my, you know, this vegetarian type thing. So I basically thought that diet was kind of pointless. And even though I had this really healthy vegetarian diet, I wasn't particularly healthy. It didn't really seem to help my body composition or anything else. So I thought diet was kind of pointless. And then in I went to Loma Linda University, which is this medical school in um, California. That's Loma Linda is a famous blue zone where mm-hmm. uh, it's a plant-based Mecca where everyone eats vegetarian and everyone lives longer, supposedly. Um, and so they have a very strong diet message. And uh, that's the, sort of where I came from, but this plant-based diet wasn't really working for me very well, and I didn't really see it working for a lot of people around me very well. And so I actually started uh, working as a doctor with the thought that diet was pointless and who cares. Uh, but but then I had a, a, a patient in my internship uh, read this Atkins book and just immediately drop 30 pounds and cure his diabetes and get off of all his medications. And I was like, wow, that's really powerful. I haven't, you know, I've never really seen someone make a diet change like this that had such a big impact on their health. And that's kind of where I got my start. That was 20 years ago. And ever since I've just been researching anything I can find on 
macronutrients in health and uh, diet uh, parameters in health and diet patterns in health. And so uh, at some point, I also got geeked out on the exercise side. And I realized that the only difference between the super, super, super healthy people I was seeing and the really, really chronically sick, you know, frail people that I was seeing was just diet and exercise. And the more I researched this, the more I realized that there's just a few basic levers that drive everything in the diet and exercise space. And uh, I've just been pretty much addicted to researching diet and exercise and trying to find ways to implement that in my practice for my patients and try to make it as simple as possible for people and as basic as possible for people. And uh, just uh, getting this information to my to my patients and my clients as fast as possible has pretty much been my, both my hobby and part of my day job for about 20 years now. Well, that's, that's a long time and a lot of research. And um, I also believe that when you look at large groups of population and um, if one set of group is not that healthy and the other uh, set is healthy, then you see certain differences in diet and exercise for sure. And it doesn't mean that this set of group of people have to go to the gym and, you know, exercise for two hours every day. But as long as you see them moving throughout the day, which we call that um, increased non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT, or just, you know, just picking up their own things. You mentioned blue zones. And one of the things that we also find very common in all the blue zones around the world, like Sardinia and things like that, is that people are much more active and they don't just keep sitting all day and they move around a lot they have um they have different nutrition principles yeah that i would agree um from you know people in okinawa which are having more higher carbohydrate intake to then someone in the mediterranean which somehow has a balance of everything but yeah exercise is also a very important thing and what when you um when you grew up um in the seven day adventist and Loma Linda, do you see that things are changing there now, given that all this new information is coming out around, you know, the, the carnivore diet or keto or having more animal or saturated fats in their diet? Have you cha- seen a shift in the last few years? Or is it? Well, I, <laughs> I haven't really been back to Loma Linda for a long time, so I don't uh-huh. have a really good feel for uh, what what's going on there. But I do have family and friends who are remain um, Adventist, very devout Adventists, and I don't see much of a change there. I see these extremely high-carb, uh, low-fat diets, like your Dr. McDougal starch solution type diets as being really, really popular. Uh, so very, very low-fat, very low cholesterol, very plant-based, um, very high-carb, high-starch uh seems to be still the 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 popular message um at least with the adventists from what from what i can see and mm-hmm. so i no i don't see a little uh really much changes there at all um mm-hmm. uh, yeah talk to us what happens when a person goes extremely low fat or you know low cholesterol like what was advocated in the 70s um that you know having higher amounts of fats or cholesterol might lead to heart attacks. Um, Tell us what really happens when you have low cholesterol, low fat in your diet throughout the year. Well, there's a couple of phenomena that are very, very interesting. First of all, 
if you eat a extremely low protein diet, mm -hmm. um, the cost of weight gain goes up exponentially. And so people actually get thinner and thinner. If you can get the protein percent of your diet down to about 5%, um, you'll actually get very, very thin. You'll actually weigh the least. If, you, if your whole goal on earth is to weigh the absolute least, you want the lowest protein diet you can get. You want about a 5% protein diet. You want very low fat, very low protein, mostly carbs. This is your fruititarian diet. This is your potato hack. Uh, so fruit is, you know, going to be three, four, five percent protein. Um, and if all you eat is fruit, if you're just a raw vegan fruititarian mono dieter of just fruit, you're actually going to weigh the very, very least. These people uh, do not weigh very much. Uh, part of the problem, though, is that their body composition is not great. Like, so you're, you, you're still a little bit skinny fat and you're what's what you've really lost is a ton of lean mass. Usually you're looking at sarcopenia, osteopenia. you just don't have a lot of bone or muscle. Even the weight of all your organs goes down your heart, your brain, your liver, these things will all weigh less. Um, so if your goal is to just be the lightest and have no lean mass, including muscle, bone or organs, then yeah, you want a super low protein diet, which tends to go hand in hand with a very low fat, low and high carbohydrate diet. Like, because those are just the foods that are gonna be that low in protein typically. Um, so now if you go very, very low fat, but you also keep your protein super high, like let's say you're eating, you know, two grams per pound, uh of protein uh and but you crank your fat really really low you just eat 30 grams a day uh you're as long as you're exercising a lot you're gonna be fine and you're pretty much gonna look like a bodybuilder like most of your uh bikini models and bodybuilders and fitness models and aesthetic athletes are eating an insanely high protein percentage you know mm -hmm. 40 50 percent of calories um but their fat is really low. Maybe they're eating as few as 30 or 40 grams of fat a day. Uh, and then carbs might be super high, several hundred grams. And that is okay. That is an okay dietary pattern. You can pull that off. And a lot of aesthetic athletes are actually doing that. They're eating all these carbs to fuel some high intensity workouts. And their fat is ultra low because at the end of the day, eating fat gets stored as dietary fat if you don't burn it. Um, and then proteins are super high for to support lean mass and basically satiety per calorie. Uh, so you can you can kind of pull off the low fat thing. Um, you can pull off low protein, but you're going to be uh, <laughs> sort of frail. Um, you can also pull off very, very low carb. And of course, you see people doing that with great success in the low carb and keto space. So, uh, yeah, interesting stuff happens when you dial any of these really low. It's a, yeah, it's a classical bodybuilding, um, white rice and chicken breast kind of a diet that you mentioned. Right, a lot, exactly. of, a lot of chicken breast, yeah. Um, you also mentioned something that caught my attention, which is um, satiety per calorie. Talk to us about what that is and have you seen or which of the current dietary patterns um, in the world, like paleo, vegan, keto, carnivore, uh, can get as close or higher in the index of that higher satiety per calorie. Gotcha. Okay, so satiety per calorie is just sort of this idea 
<clears throat> that some foods you're going to be less hungry after you eat them and other foods you're going to be more hungry when you eat them. Um, things that improve satiety per calorie, protein, fiber, water. Uh, so if I give you a food that has lots of protein, lots of fiber, lots of water, lots of micronutrients, uh, but hardly any calories, and usually that's both low carb and low fat, you're going to have a much higher satiety per calorie. The very, very worst satiety per calorie is something that's low in protein, low in fiber, low in water, and has just a highly refined and dehydrated uh, carbs and fats together. When you have high energy density carbs and fats together, this uh, drives overeating hedonically because it's just super tasty and it spikes dopamine in your brain. So the very, very worst would be something that's dehydrated and fat and carbs together with a high energy density. Potato chips are pretty much like the absolute worst. So, you know, for example, let's say your whole basal metabolic rate is 1600 calories, um, you know, which is probably a good guess for somebody like you or I. Yep. So um, you can get 1600 calories from 10 ounces of potato chips, right? Th these are so light because they've been dehydrated. You've replaced all the water with oil. And so the energy density is through the roof. The weight is almost nothing. And so you're getting just murdered from potato chips for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's hardly any protein. Like potato chip is about 4% protein. So you're just not going to get this satiety from protein. Uh, there's almost no fiber, uh, which is a disaster. It's been dehydrated and the water's all gone. It's a high energy density carbon fat together. Um, so the energy density is a big deal. Most humans eat about four pounds of food a day and you can eat these foods with a lot more protein and fiber and water. Like, you know, you could eat four pounds of strawberries is only like a hundred grams of carbs and maybe 500 calories. And so you can eat tons more of a food with fiber or water or protein like fish or uh, chicken breast or uh, berries or uh, Greek yogurt or something that's just got a lot more protein and water too. So that's the concept of satiety per calorie. Foods that are heavier and wetter and have more protein, fiber, minerals, micronutrients are going to give you way more satiety per calorie versus some dehydrated, high energy density, refined carbon fat together, like a donut or something like that. Uh, I think you asked me um, like what, what dietary patterns will get you the closest. Yeah. Uh, what do I you see think? I see some winners and losers in every diet religion. So like okay. if you go low carb, you could do it right and just eat fish and salad and that would be amazing. But you could do it wrong and just eat butter and cubes of lard and it's actually going to be horrible, like worse. Um, you could, same thing with low fat or plant-based. Like, you know, I've seen people do, uh, uh, you know, you could, you could, eat something that's made out of dates and honey and it would be super high energy density and just a crap ton of sugar and fairly low satiety per calorie and you could even mix that with a plant fat you can make a smoothie of like avocado and dates or something and it would have a billion calories horrible um satiety per calorie really high energy density very low protein um, so you could do it right or wrong with each dietary pattern and one of the things i talk about in the book is how Every diet religion gets a, a few things right, which makes some people have success on it, but then you could also do it wrong. So it's, it's not really a good idea to just blindly follow any of these 
diet mm-hmm. religions. Okay, that that is very interesting. And you brought up something also very interesting that, you know, when you um, most of us are we love when we combine carbs and fats together. And um, it's interesting because in nature, you would never find any of these two compounds. Like there's hardly any foods that you find with, which have higher percentages of fat and higher percentages of carbs um, together. And um, I like how, you know, food scientists or food engineers, maybe how you call them, um, which work at big companies and they take advantage of this evolutionary mismatch and they're just like designing foods day in and day out, which can cause this um, first cause disaster, as you mentioned, in our bodies, but they're also hyper palatable. So it's so difficult for an individual because when I was growing up, I grew up a lot on those potato chips and that was, those were comforting foods and uh, burgers and pizzas and things like that. And no matter how hard I wanted to try to give it up, there was something about them that just made me keep coming to them again and again. And, you know, I always tell people that there are certain factors that are surrounding you and most of them, they kind of like push you into the same trap, like sleep deprivation can be one, stress can be one, um, having any kind of emotional dysregulation, like either being upset, sad, lonely. And this is what we have seen in the last two years where people have been isolated. And yeah, we were talking about um, on this offline on how things are in your part of the world and my part of the world. But I saw most of the people that I know went, gained a lot of weight when they were in um, this lockdown phase of our lives. And most of it happened because they were combining those two macronutrients together all the time. So thanks for mentioning that. And um, you have, uh, when I look at your work, there are just so many things that, um, you know, catch my interest. I spoke to um, Scott from the Carnivore Cast podcast, and I asked him a question. Uh, the, pressure, the question was um, about protein and what happens when you eat a lot of protein. And I wanted to link it to longevity and then he mentioned you and he said you should ask dr ted this question if you can ever get him on the show and surprisingly we had the schedule so i told him yeah i have him on in a few weeks and i'm gonna ask him this for sure and the question was we all know about the benefits of eating protein i mean i'm sure a part of the population doesn't but protein is really good for you the amino acids that can help you in almost all biological processes but then like you mentioned, those bodybuilders who have uh, who are chasing the aesthetic goal and might overeat protein. And one part of or a group of people also would argue that eating higher amounts of protein would compromise your longevity because it stimulates certain growth pathways such as mTOR and downregulates other patterns like AMPK and autophagy. So I wanted to get your take on it because I see a lot of people who are, uh, you know, doing the whole carnivore thing a lot of them uh, like when i spoke to scott don't really only eat organ meats and like nose to tail but are eating the methionine rich um, muscle meats so what's your take on protein and longevity well i think it would definitely be on a u-shaped curve just like everything else in life and i think what you want to do is dial your protein percent up to the point that you get, you know, extremely lean and good body composition. But going above that is probably bad. So it really is, I'm quite sure, 
on some sort of U-shaped curve. I mean, why would it not be, just like everything else? And I think what we're seeing is in modern society, the protein percent is just freakishly low on one end of the U, uh, this U-shaped curve, just making everybody massively overfat, which is super, super, super terrible for longevity. Like, like we literally know that just the higher your fat mass, the higher your morbidity and mortality in almost a straight line fashion. So 91% of humans on earth are over fat now because hunter gatherers have maybe a 33% protein diet, 5% of calories on average. Mm -hmm. And right now we're at 12 and percent in America. So we have this just horrifically protein diluted diet, which is making everyone over fat. And I'm, uh, thousand percent sure that we're pushed way off to one side of that u-shaped curve where everyone's under prioritizing protein and basically forced to eat calories as a result so what you want to do is find the sweet spot of that curve and it's probably at a 30 percent protein or something which to most people in modern society is just a super high protein percent like unbelievably high uh, but then above that, you have, you know, competitive bodybuilders who are always eating, you know, 40%, maybe 50%, occasionally at extremes of 60% protein, calories from protein. And I would absolutely believe that at some point there, you've crossed the sweet spot in the center of the U-shaped curve and started to climb up the other side. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's probably slightly different for everyone. And I think you have to find where that center part of the U is. But I can guarantee you it's at least double the protein percentage of the average person. <laughs> oh, at least in America. I mean, it was just a disaster. So um, <clears throat> I think that uh, everybody should probably be eating what looks to, in modern society like a really high protein percentage. But from a hunter-gatherer point of view, it's really not. Um, and that's definitely my definitive answer on on that topic. Thank you for that. And uh, you also mentioned something which um, now I'm thinking about it. I spoke to Dr. David Minkoff a few episodes ago, and he mentioned that not all the protein that you or we digest or we uh, digest can get absorbed, right? So proteins break down into amino acids and not all, like let's say if you're having a steak and the steak uh, quote unquote has um, 30 grams of protein every time you eat that steak it doesn't guarantee that you will be your body will break down 30 grams of protein and digest it so the other thing that also comes into place is digestion and amino acid utilization what do you think about that and do you have any tricks or hacks on you know how to get that protein optimized or digested or those amino acids utilized in the bloodstream uh, well, first of all, the digestibility um, is pretty high. You actually do break down and absorb all of those aminos or most of those aminos, even if you just eat one meal a day and it's, you know, 100 grams of protein. You, uh, your protein slows your digestive tract. It slows the transit time way, 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 way down. And you will actually break down and absorb the vast majority of the amino acids, even if you eat just one giant, huge, mega protein meal a day. Um, now, what does end up happening is if you have this huge spike of aminos in the blood, and then, you know, the rest of the day you have a lot lower levels, you will end up possibly burning a higher percentage of them 
uh, for energy, basically catabolizing the aminos and using it as an energy substrate, uh, the, the carbon backbone. So if you're really, really, tr if you're lifting weights and you're trying to be a bodybuilder and you're trying to absolutely optimize muscle protein synthesis, it might make sense to break your protein down into smaller, more frequent meals, like maybe have two or three or four smaller meals. Uh, just to get a better distribution of aminos in your bloodstream if you're lifting weights um, and trying to maximize muscle protein synthesis. For most people, it's not that big a deal. I do think one meal a day is actually too short an eating window. Um, and I think, you know, like five meals a day is probably higher than ideal for most people. So there's got to be a sweet spot in there. For me, it's, you know, two meals and a snack, I would say for the average human, it's probably three meals a day. And uh, <clears throat> I do think that breaking your protein up into various meals is better for basically nutrient partitioning in general. I also think that the most important is the first meal of the day where you're, you know, you've been sleeping, you've been fasting, you have very few amino acids in your bloodstream. So the first meal of the day is very important. And probably the last meal of the day is very important as well, just to provide these aminos in your bloodstream in case you want to have some muscle protein synthesis going on. So I like at least two meals a day and really high protein percents in those two meals, first and last. And whatever happens in the middle there, I'm less worried about. I kind of don't care. So um, that's my take on it. And then personally, so I'm eating basically a 16-8 uh, with two meals and a snack. And it's just protein heavy at both of those major meals. Are you using any kind of digestive enzymes or stomach acid like BTNHCL or something like that to absorb more protein or break down the protein easier? Uh, no, not at all. I never use any of that. I never recommend any of that. And I don't really have many clients who need or are using those sorts of things either okay and what i wanted to learn your take on a personal fat threshold ah, that right, is... right, right. so personal fat threshold this is a term coined by professor roy taylor over in the uk and he's this very smart uh researcher in diabetes and basically um <clears throat> what he's realized or what we've basically science in general has known this to some extent for about 50 years but what we've realized is that your fat cells <clears throat> you have a you have a certain number of fat cells on your body and they can only get to a certain size you know maybe 200 microns in diameter or so um you you first store fat in your subcutaneous fat cells if you if you have the right genetics once you start filling up all those subcutaneous fat cells you can sprout more um, so you get uh, adipocyte hyperplasia where you sprout more fat cells and you might be able to get fatter and fatter and fatter. And you see people who are a thousand pounds, you know, and the, what they have is the right genetics to sprout new baby fat cells, adipocyte hyperplasia. So they can just expand their fat tissue almost indefinitely. Um, some people can't do this genetically. Like they can only have, let's say you can only have a hundred subcutaneous fat cells in your whole body, and you just can't make more. Once you've filled all 100 of those fat cells to their maximum size, now when you eat fat, it has no place to go. So you're, you have to start storing it viscerally in your uh, abdominal fat cells. 
And again, you might have the ability to make a lot more of those or not. You might be severely limited in your genetic ability to undergo adipocyte hyperplasia. So let's say you only have 50 more fat cells in your abdominal area and you fill all of those up. Well, now where is fat energy going to go in your bloodstream? Uh, it doesn't have a good place to go. And that's when your triglycerides start being high all the time. You know, now if you eat uh, a whole stick of butter, that fat energy just circulates in your bloodstream for hours or days. And you're now you're, every time you eat your blood drawn, your triglycerides are 300 or 500 or 1,000 or 10,000. Or, you know, we see some extremes. Um, this is when you are insulin resistant. Uh, insulin your pancreas is a basically a fuel sensor. When there are fuels in your bloodstream of any kind that your body wants to clear out and, and keep these fuels out of your bloodstream, your uh, pancreas releases insulin because it's, it's telling your cells, hey, you know, take up this energy because we don't want it in the bloodstream. The pancreas uh, emits glucagon to raise fuels in the bloodstream if your blood sugar or your fuel levels low. And if your fuel level's high, insulin lowers it. So you've got glucagon and, and insulin raising and lowering the amount of fuels in your bloodstream. Once your fat cells are all full, you've got too much fuel in your bloodstream all the time. Your triglycerides are high. Uh, once every cell in your body is, is um, filled with fat, like your muscle cells and all of these fat cells, now your cells start to refuse glucose. Your cells are like, oh, we already have so much fat. We don't want any glucose. That's when your blood sugar finally starts going too high. That's when you're pre-diabetic and diabetic. Typically, you've had insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome for years before that with high triglycerides and a high waist circumference and too much fat in your abdominal area. Um, so it's just this slow overfilling of, of all the fat cells in your body. So cutaneous, then visceral, uh, then you've got all this fat energy in your bloodstream. And now every cell is soaked in fat and they start refusing glucose. And now your blood sugar is too high all the time. And that's when you're a type 2 diabetic, which is the final end stage of metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance, or which is all just over fatness and exceeding your quote unquote personal fat threshold. Now, at that point, you can go on any kind of low calorie diet. It could be low fat. It could be low carb. Uh, but basically, once you burn off some of this energy, uh, your diabetes gets better, your blood sugar goes down, your triglycerides go down, um, liver fat goes down. It turns out that 100% of type 2 diabetics have fatty liver, and the liver is one of the last places for all this fat to get packed into. You know what I mean? The fat has filled your subcutaneous cells, your visceral cells, your muscle cells, then it gets shoved into your liver, and then you're diabetic. And if you just... Um, fasted for a couple of weeks or ate a super low calorie diet of any kind, you'll clean the fat out of your liver, the fat in your bloodstream. First of all, the energy in your bloodstream goes down, blood sugar, triglycerides, then the fat in your liver goes down, and then the fat in your fat cells start going down. And it's a last in first out. So the liver fat clears first, then the visceral fat, and then finally the subcutaneous fat. And so you basically unwind your insulin resistance the same way you spiraled it up. And uh, that's the personal fat threshold concept. The, the, the basic idea is that you have a genetic ability to have new fat cells. And some people of certain um, ethnicities and genetic backgrounds just cannot make a lot of fat cells. People from Southeast uh, Asia, for example, 
are super limited into how many new fat cells they can sprout. And so you'll see anyone from India or China uh, become diabetic at a much lower weight, a much lower body mass index, and just a smaller size in general, uh, because they have fewer fat cells and they can sprout fewer fat cells. Oh, versus someone from, you know, Northern Europe might be able to get to 500 pounds and they're still fairly insulin sensitive. They could still sprout even new um, fat cells. So that is the idea of the personal fat threshold. And that's why you see these skinny fat people who are horribly diabetic, even though they're only five pounds overweight. Um, it really explains pretty much every phenomenon we see with uh, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes at different BMIs. And that's kind of what's going on internally that you just can't necessarily see by looking at people. Yeah. And um, this is the classic, um, you know, it's just like a trap because most of the people who aren't uh, much educated about health and wellness, their whole idea about becoming healthy is looking good, right? And while looking good, if they can, if they see some people or this set of people who are in McDonald's or in KFC or one of these fast food restaurants, which we know by now isn't the best choice for you, um, or like a donut shop, and they're having all these foods, and then you tell them these foods are bad for you, and they tell you like, hey, look at that person, because that person is so thin, and you know, may, they might be skinny fat, but uh, they don't put on so much of weight, hence they don't have that... Um, that ability to look that big when compared to someone else. And this is one of the things that I keep getting often is like, how is this person so different? And uh, I'm just following what uh, person X does. But person X, like you mentioned, biochemical individuality is completely, completely different. Their ancestral background is different. The way their genes, their hormones, the interplay, the epigenetics might be completely off. You might see them like I had a friend, you know, he had a six pack and looked all good and would eat McDonald's, but he worked his ass off at the gym, which most of the people might not know. And they would just know him for, you know, just eating McDonald's all the time. Yeah. So I'm so happy that you brought that up because it does clear a lot of these, um, uh, these myths or these, these blind spots that people don't look at. And another thing uh, was if, Adipocyte hyperplasia is governed by genes. Do you think this is the same, like the same effect can happen with myocytes or muscle cells as well? Are oh, these... absolutely. <clears throat> so yeah, there can be some absolutely. people. Okay. Yeah, and in fact, you'll again you'll see people from Southeast Asia who just cannot um, yeah. produce the same amount of muscle cells as some, you know, mesomorphic. Uh, well, you know, for example, African Americans are basically always going to have more muscle mass, statistically speaking, on average, than Caucasians, uh, who are always going to have more muscle mass, uh, statistically speaking, than someone from Southeast Asia. And there are these very, very real genetic differences. So you're super, super limited into your genetic potential for building muscle and for your genetic potential for building fat. And it's totally individual. And, and, in, and so in every circumstance, all, the only thing you can do is become the best version of yourself that you can be genetically. You know what I mean? Like I have a, everyone has a super rigid ceiling of uh, amount of muscle they can put on 
genetically, no matter what, uh, unless you like take a bunch of steroids, you might be able to push that up you know, a little bit higher, but even then you're going to have a major limitation and um, all of your, you know, uh, Mr. Olympia, Ronnie Coleman types just have this crazy, crazy genetics for just putting on slabs of muscle. And then you'll have someone else who's working out just as hard uh, and they'll absolutely never put on anywhere close to that amount of muscle. So yeah, it's hugely genetic. Mm -hmm. And um, we've spoken about proteins, carbs, fats. What's your take on minerals? Because these days I see um the highlight going a lot onto minerals a lot of people are talking about minerals these days well humans have uh very specific appetites for for five things that we know of uh protein carbs fat uh and then sodium and calcium minerals and so there are very interesting studies in the animal world for example where uh, if you feed an animal like a low calcium or a low phosphorus or a low sodium diet, they might radically overeat, just desperately trying to get these minerals. So what you really don't want is a uh, low mineral diet. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that could be a disaster for a lot of people. Now, I also think that there's a point that when you have adequate minerals, taking more above that is probably not helpful. And in the case of sodium, it does actually seem to be a U-shaped curve, where if you, massively overconsume sodium that's actually bad for you uh especially if you blow out your sodium to potassium ratio so minerals are all on a u-shaped curve but uh what you really don't want is to be too low in those suckers especially the macro minerals the minerals that you need in a pretty freaking large quantity every day like sodium and potassium so uh, minerals are a big deal uh you are literally better off getting them from food than from supplements. So you, what you want to do is food choice, choosing food that you know are high in minerals, especially things like potassium. Uh, so yeah, it, it is kind of important. Yeah, but also when you have foods, uh, especially when you talk about potassium, then you have all these things like bananas and stuff, but they also have a higher carb percentage. Um, do you, have you found any um, or what are your opinions on some low carb uh, food which also have high amounts of minerals? Anything out of the ocean. So anything you pull out of the ocean is just going to immediately be freaking awesome. It's going to have just a killer protein energy ratio. It's going to have a crap ton of minerals. It's going to have a super high nutrient density and a super low calorie density like uh ocean foods are the very very best in my opinion in that regard so that's what you want to do if you're trying to not eat like you know 30 bananas a day yeah. and get, you know carb poisoning just trying to get enough potassium yeah you really want to stick well or you definitely want to eat a lot of ocean foods and these foods are also very high in calcium very high in Sodium, very high in potassium, very high in trace minerals. I mean, it's just a win all the way across the board. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, protein to energy ratio, and that's also the title of your book. Am I correct? Correct, right. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a bit. What is, uh, for people who have never heard something like this, what is a protein to energy ratio? Right, right. So this is really just protein percentage of your diet. 
but <clears throat> I came up with this system called it's the book is called the PE diet mm -hmm. and it's looking at grams of protein in your diet versus grams of non-protein energy, which is uh, net carbs or total carbs minus fiber and fat. And so you'll see that certain foods are really, really high in protein and low in carbs and fats. And then certain foods are super low in protein and high in carbs and fat. And you'll basically automatically eat less calories in foods that have a high PE ratio. And you're going to automatically eat more calories in foods that are low. And so it's just a really good metric. Um, this metric kind of takes everything into account. It takes the protein percentage into account. It, it takes fiber into account. It takes energy density into account. And so foods with a higher PE ratio, you're just going to automatically eat less and you're going to automatically lose weight when you choose these foods. And that's what the diet's all about. It, it's a qualitative diet uh, rather than quantitative. It basically, food choice is everything. You choose a food with a higher protein energy ratio, you're going to automatically eat less and lose weight. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you also have um, one resource for people where you have ranked um, the protein energy ratio of almost all foods. Is that correct? Uh, well, I mean, I have a couple little online calculators. Yeah. Uh, one is uh, uh, the P pter.com is, is basically like a little calculator you can see online. Um, you can also go to, if you go to the pediet.com, there's a link to it there. Um, and this is basically just a way of visually seeing where different foods are on this protein to energy scale. Mm -hmm. What's your take on training? When you look at these famous training styles, like we spoke about bodybuilding earlier or CrossFit or training for a marathon, do you think any, and most of these are kind of extreme in their own way. So what's your take on them? So, okay, first of all, exercise is awesome. Like I used to think exercise didn't really matter and it was mostly diet. And now I realize that diet and exercise are each like 50-50 straight down the middle. You absolutely have to have both to have optimum health and optimum body composition. So exercise is a huge big deal. And there's two specific types of exercise everyone should be doing. And that's some sort of resistance exercise and some sort of cardio exercise. But when it comes to cardio and resistance, uh, <clears throat> what I've done is focused on number one, stimulus to fatigue ratio. So like, for example, you could do an hour of CrossFit, um, which it, it, afterwards, you're just exhausted, right? Like the whole point of that is to maximize fatigue. But maybe at no point there, you really hit muscular failure enough with your resistance part of the CrossFit to get optimal muscle hypertrophy, to get the optimal stimulus to grow more muscle. So you're not going to see any bodybuilders doing CrossFit, you know, most of the time, at least just not for muscular hypertrophy, because the stimulus to fatigue ratio is horrible, right? Tons of fatigue, but you never really hit failure super deliberately in any muscle group. So <clears throat> I really like to, uh, solve the equation for the highest stimulus to fatigue ratio and also the lowest time and equipment costs. So I love just, you know, 
super basic calisthenics with perfect form trying to go to absolute failure so you can get the highest stimulus for the least fatigue and the least time and the least amount of equipment. And I kind of break this down in the book. And the whole idea with the resistance part is just doing um, pushing exercises like push-ups, pulling exercises like pull-ups, and leg exercises like pistol squats or lunges. And you're trying to do this in with perfect form all the way to failure. And when you do that, you get a huge stimulus for hardly any fatigue and hardly any time and hardly any equipment. And that's my whole take on it. Um, cardio is kind of the same way. You can cardio, you can always trade intensity for duration. So you could do like 30 minutes of low intensity cardio, 20 minutes of medium intensity cardio, or 10 minutes of high intensity cardio. You're pretty much going to get the same adaptations from any of these. And so I like to trade intensity for duration. So I might do something really all out, like jumping rope or uh, sprints or running up a hill or, or jump squats instead of just like, you know, walking for a couple hours or just doing some really low intensity type thing. Um, uh, you can, you can get by with just low intensity cardio, but you have to do a more of a time investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While you were saying this, I was taking notes. Um, and it's quite interesting because I've never thought about it in, uh, the ratio format, like stimulus to fatigue ratio or intensity for duration. So thank you for sharing all of that. And I think uh, starting tomorrow when I go to the gym, this is going to be my question to myself. How can I, <laughs> what stimulus am I putting in and how much fatigue am I getting? Um, yeah. Do you think fatigue is necessary for, um, you know, either muscle protein synthesis or muscular hypertrophy? Is it absolutely essential or? Well, I, I do think <clears throat> now there there's, you could specifically be looking for endurance, okay? Endurance is a thing all by itself. So if you want to be an Ironman triathlon type person, you have to build up endurance. And so that just means just tons of uh, medium intensity cardio just for a really long period of time. And you're going to get huge fatigue from that. So <clears throat> being more resilient uh with huge volumes it's going to give you more endurance and that's a specific adaptation to a specific demand and so if you if you're looking for endurance crossfit's great it, it, if you if you're if you're just trying to uh basically demand that your body get super fatigued and keep going that's endurance and crossfit will do that for you crossfit's probably the best thing for that so it all just depends on what you're looking for so my personal goal is to have the highest lean mass at the lowest fat mass, and then also to have good uh, VO2 max, which is like maximum cardio output. So I can pull that off by just doing the this really high intensity resistance exercise all the way to failure, uh, really low stimulus to fatigue ratio. And I can also do these super brief cardio blasts. And again, a really uh, good stimulus to lower my VO, or to raise my VO2 max and improve my cardio output without being very fatiguing because it's so brief. So I can kind of use these techniques for what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm not going to really get endurance from that. So if you're specifically mm -hmm. trying to train endurance, then you do want a CrossFit or you want to run a marathon or you just want to run huge mi mileage. And th there's nothing else that's going to really give you that. So there is a role for things like CrossFit. It just depends on what your, what your goal is. Okay. 
but that is the performance side of it. Now let's talk about the health side of it. When you see people who are running a marathon or who are constantly looking for that inflammation with bodybuilding um, or, you know, looking for that max intensity day in, day out with long endurance bouts like CrossFit, how does that impact our health and longevity? Because you know, you see, like I mentioned in the beginning, you see the most healthiest people around the world and none of them are either doing all of them, like neither of them. So how does it impact um, our bodies? Yeah, so cardio is interesting. It's definitely on a U-shaped curve <clears throat> where if you don't do enough cardio, you're, you know, your VO2 max is low, you're in bad cardiorespiratory fitness. And that's clearly bad for you. Uh, so doing some cardio is clearly beneficial like you know for example uh people who have good cardiovascular fitness are 12 times less likely to get alzheimer's dementia than people who don't that's huge that's big that's enormous there's nothing diet that even comes close to being that big of a deal so cardio is awesome but if you look at the u-shaped curve for cardio once you go north of about 45 minutes uh or an hour of hard cardio per day, you're actually in, in uh, going up the other side of the U where it's actually bad possibly. Like you, we see more cardiac arrhythmias and we see more cardiac remodeling, the strain on the heart, and we see more hypoxic stuff going on that could actually be slightly bad. And so cardio is definitely on this U-shaped curve. And I'm typically not recommending that people do more than an hour of hard cardio a day. You know, on average, obviously, there you could run a marathon here and there, or you could do a couple hours here and there. No big deal. But just like chronic cardio, um, high intensity for over an hour every day, it's, you get to this point where it's, uh, you can't recover from it. And you could actually get some cardiac remodeling that's literally bad for you. And that would literally uh, worsen your um, lifespan. Um, same thing with resistance training. If you go over a maximum recoverable volume, uh, you have these inflammatory processes that are good for, good for you in certain doses. But just like, you know, drinking water, you could actually drink enough to kill you. You could actually do so much uh, unrecoverable resistance training that it's physically bad for you. And so all this stuff is kind of on this U-shaped curve. And you want to find the sweet spot for you. And it's definitely not ever doing cardio. And it's definitely not doing hours of cardio a day. So I really like, you know, half an hour of moderate intensity uh or high intensity cardio a day seems to be a really good sweet spot for a lot of people um really good you know stimulus to fatigue ratio uh but it's somewhere in there you could do even briefer if the intensity is super high you could do a lot longer if the intensity is lower but it you multiply the intensity times the duration and somewhere in there is a sweet spot of the u-shaped curve and it's a little bit different for everyone but it's these are just concepts you want to keep in mind Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Are you in your life using um, any biohacks or any recovery tools, anything uh, interesting worth mentioning? Um, no, and I, I feel bad because I'm not really doing a lot of 
quote unquote biohacking. Like mm -hmm. honestly, I never take any supplements at all. I basically almost never recommend them. Um, <clears throat> I'm not using any gimmicky anything. I'm super, super basic. It's just like body weight calisthenics using the floor. Um, no money, no time, no equipment, no special supplements, no, yeah, my, my biohacking factor is like zero over here. <laughs> okay. So you, it's really you, low budget. You must have been so comfortable, um, you know, in the initial phase of the lockdown, because a lot of people I know were like, uh, they've never done any kind of a home workout and they haven't like looked into calisthenics because everyone's just using barbells and dumbbells. But um, yeah, like people learned a lot in the last two years about home workouts. Were you also uh, sharing your personal home workouts um, in that time? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was just talking to all my patients about how to do it at home. Uh, yeah. The book basically breaks it all down. You can totally work out at home, no problem. And, <clears throat> uh, you know, it's interesting. I like, uh, I would say my average patient gained about 15 pounds during the pandemic. Everyone came out fatter and more diabetic. Uh, uh, you know, childhood obesity shot up during the pandemic, uh, uh, childhood type 2 diabetes doubled during the pandemic, all this stuff happened. But I have a couple of clients who started doing calisthenics, like they started doing pull-ups or push-ups or uh, running. And I have just a handful of people who just just rose out of the ashes like a phoenix, like like they came out of uh, the pandemic and they're just ripped and jacked. I have a patient who you know ran a marathon. I have uh, patients who uh, now they can do twenty pull ups and like all this crazy stuff. And, and it does seem to come down to people who who were able to uh pivot on a dime and start working out on their own instead of having to go to the big box gym or the big class or whatever and it's just uh it's really interesting like you know when we have the zombie apocalypse or whatever uh and everyone's living off the grid <laughs> you know that certain people are actually going to flourish and do better and then uh, most people are going to do worse so it, you just uh it really comes down to the ability to, um, you know, pivot like that and adjust and uh, change your your dynamic and your mindset and learn something new. And uh, yeah, there's a lesson there somewhere, I think. Yeah, uh, I've also told myself that this year I'm going to take some, you know, um, lessons on how to grow vegetables and you know going to do some research on that just try to be more self-sufficient because yes it did make all of us realize that you know what if you know, what if something happens and you know you're left by yourself uh and i see a fair amount of people like taking that effort which is very nice they're making that effort to learn from people or share what they know and um yeah i'm really happy and that yeah, has almost cool. brought us to the end of this podcast. Wow, the time has just gone so fast. And my last question to you is, if you had a time machine, like let's say hypothetically you had a time machine and you can go back to your younger self, maybe around 20 or 30 years old, and if you could give yourself one, two, three, how many ever pieces of advice, what would that be? I mean... Everyone would tell themselves to go buy Bitcoin, but like apart from buying Bitcoin, what would you tell yourself? <laughs> Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I would tell myself that 
wherever you're at or whatever you're doing, if you just prioritize the high protein foods in your food environment and just eat those, you'll literally have better body composition. And if you just put maximum tension in all of your muscles uh, on a daily basis, just using your environment, pull-ups, push-up squats, you can literally achieve the highest lean mass at the lowest fat mass wherever you're at in any setting by just doing those two things. It's basically prioritizing the highest protein foods in your environment and eating those and putting maximum tension in all your muscles on a regular basis. And that's pretty much the whole secret to uh, body comp, uh, metabolic health, health in general. It, it literally comes down to just these two super basic concepts, and that's protein and resistance. And I would have just told myself that, you know, uh, that, that that's probably the one thing I would have told myself way back in the day. And I would have saved myself a lot of time. And uh, yeah. Amazing. Thanks you for sharing that. This has been a fantastic conversation and I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you for all the good work that you've been doing. Now, if people want to get in touch with you, are you doing uh, any online coaching or how can, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they best do that? via your website or? Well, uh, yeah, I'm a primary care doctor in Seattle, but my practice is totally full, completely closed. I don't do uh -huh. any consults or any okay. online, anything. So probably the only piece of value I have for most people is the book I wrote, The PE mm -hmm. Diet, uh, which I wrote with William Schufeld. And you can get that book at thepediet.com or pretty much anywhere where books are sold online, like Amazon. And uh, <clears throat> I'm, but I'm also I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram at Ted Naiman, and you can check me out in those kinds of places too. Amazing, thank you, Ted. Thank you for today. And this is CJ, your host, signing out from ShiftWithCJ.com. Everyone, have a great day ahead of you. Your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated.